Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. I grew up in a Peranakan family. How many of you know what Peranakan family is? Yeah? Uh, but I grew up in a Peranakan uh, family, Peranakan culture, and uh, love it. You know, I was exposed to the most brilliant food on planet Earth, you know. Walk a lot, you know, barbie thing and, and stuff like that. And it's the most amazing food that requires like 50 steps to make. Amy's going to take classes. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I love uh, Pranakan culture. I love Pranakan food. And it explains my love for spicy food and my devilishly good looks, you know. Because you know, Pranakan people are just naturally good looking. And, uh, and, you know, amen. Hallelujah. How many of you are Pranakan? Just show hands. How many of you? Thank you, thank you, thank you. I have a witness. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, this is something I, I observed uh, uh, about Pranakan families, uh, and uh, specifically in my family, you know. Pranakan families are known to be really, uh, really fun, but also really direct, blunt, to the point. How many of you agree? Have, have you? Do, you? do you agree? No? Well, most Pranakan families I've been around, and uh, my family in particular, they are known to be really blunt, really direct. You know, my, my aunt... When Chinese New Year, she see me, it's like, wow, you poor weight, lah. Wow, you fat already, lah. Wow, where's your chin? You know, and my, my aunt is like super direct, uh, to the borderline, you know, in, insensitive. Um, my, uh, my mom, you know, she, 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 she didn't grow up Pranakan, but she really, really uh, assimilated into the culture. Uh, my mom, you know, uh, there's this incident once when I went uh, running with her. She asked me, it's like, Andre, do you want to go for a run with me? So we went to Bada Reservoir. It's about a four to five click track. And uh, we started uh, on the track, and she was like, hey, why don't we go slow? And so we went really slow, you know, little joggy pace. And she's like, hey, why don't we, we just brisk walk? Like? So we brisk walked the whole thing. It took us a bunch of time, and we reached the end, and then we sat down. And then my mom leans over to me and is like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. She's like, okay, I just want to take it easy because I don't know whether you can take it or not. <laughs> my mom is 57, okay? Um, I tell you, my ego was just shot in that moment, and... Uh, and uh, my, my sister tells me this one incident where my mother leans over to her and says, Hey, you know, actually, Andre is really good looking, but he's fat. La. You know, <laughs> in modern day vernacular, you say that my mom is savage, you know, but my, my mom, my parents are so direct, so blunt. Uh, and, um, and to be very honest, borderline insensitive at times, you know, some of the jokes they make, it's uh, not funny jokes, but jokes at your expense. And, uh, it's a really fun culture to grow up in, but you know, as you can imagine, it brings up all sorts of hurts, all sorts of pain. And, um, and I grew up to be a person like that as well. You know, when I was younger, I was known to be really direct, really blunt, and uh, borderline insensitive with my jokes. Even to today, I still struggle with it. You know, I still make jokes at people's expense. It's like, you know, all good fun. Where's my sister's friend? No, okay. But, um, but you know, I, I, I do that all the time and borderline insensitive. And that's... Really, the, the home I grew up in, the culture I grew up in. But I, I honestly super love it. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to share a story with you. And, uh, you know, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, it'll be, it'll be a year since I've been, I was appointed as your pastor. And so, you know, we've been together for a while now. You know, you know me, I know you. Mutual trust, respect, etc., etc. And, uh, you know, now I feel safe and vulnerable enough to be able to share a really personal story with you. And uh, I know at the end of this story, there'll be no judgment, no condemnation. Yes? Do you agree on that? Yes? yes. Okay. You know, um, how many of you know my, my beautiful wife? Way to the people. Way. Yeah, my beautiful wife. Uh, name is Amy. She's, uh, she's half Japanese. Do you know that? Yes? Half Japanese? Very beautiful, you know? You're going to have beautiful babies, you know? Pranakan, Japanese. Oh, it's going to be so chill. So, so chill. Pranakanese? I don't know. It's going to be very confused cuisines in our house. But, uh, but Amy is uh, how Japanese. And, uh, you know, when we started dating early on, and this was uh, when I was really young and uh, still, still, <laughs> still, uh, still learning and growing. I was really young then. And this was pre-working uh, in church, pre-battle. You know, um, I remember one day, two months uh, into uh, her being my girlfriend, you know, we were hanging out one day. And it was just one of those like couple moments, you know, I... I push her, then she pushed me back. Then she was like, you should give in. I was like, no, you should give in. And you know, one of those 
you know, red fan fan moments like, you should give in, no, you should give in, you should. And uh, we, were, we were doing this back and forth, and it was all cutesy, and we were laughing. And then I, I, I said this, I made this statement. And when it came out of my mouth, I instantly regretted that saying, Mom, have you have experienced something like that? <laughs> no, and she was like, no, you, you do it, I do it, you do it. And, and then I said, hey, you know, your people came into my country and occupied my land two years ago. The least you can do is give in to me. No judgment, no condemnation. And when I said that, okay, it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, that, that is insensitive. And all of a sudden, she bursts out crying. And it's not like a, you, you hurt me kind of a cry. It's like hysterical. She bursts out crying. I asked for permission to share this story. So we wouldn't have another incident. But, <laughs> but she burst out crying, hysterical. She was heaving. It was, and I was like, oh my gosh. Two months into a relationship and I've completely broken her. You know, I like, <laughs> how, many, how many months of therapy does she need to go through? And I was like, and she's my first girlfriend. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'll never date again. And, uh, and so hysterical crying and I was consoling her and it took her a while to calm down. And then she begins to share this story with me. She said that when she was younger in school, you know those social studies history kind of lessons? When they talk about Japanese occupation, her classmates would make fun of her. Her classmates were like, oh, you Japanese, blah, blah, blah. And, and she had a lot of trauma from those experiences. And you know, me, her loving boyfriend, two months in, decided to just dig up that trauma and like, how do you feel about that? And, and you know, hysterical crying. And, uh, and you know, we talked through it. We prayed together. And uh, over time, you know, it's, it's become a story that we share with uh, with first-time dating couples really often who go like, oh, I don't know whether, you know, we should be together. You know, we quarreled a bunch of times the first few weeks. I was like, let me tell you what I did in my first <laughs> couple of months of dating. And, and so today, you know, it's something that we talk about really often. But this is why I bring up the story. I bring up the story uh, because of this. What led up to that moment was a combination of two factors. One, the way I was brought up. I was brought up in a culture where we were very direct, blunt, really liberal with the kind of jokes we made to the borderline insensitive. That was the kind of home, the kind of culture I was exposed to growing up. It was my upbringing. The other aspect of what led up to the moment was the traumatic experiences that Amy had growing up. She had all this pain, all this trauma, all these embarrassing experiences from her days in school. And it's a combination of my upbringing, my past, and her traumatic experience, her past, these two things collided together in that moment and led to the explosion of emotion. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Our past, whether we choose to acknowledge or not, has a direct impact on our present. Our past, whether we choose to acknowledge, believe in it, acknowledge it, to, or we live our lives simply ignoring it, whether we recognize it or not, our past has a direct impact on our present. I will go on further to say that who you are today is largely shaped by where you came from, by what you've experienced. Today, I would like to speak to you on a subject, emotionally healthy spirituality, dealing with your past. Dealing with your past. Fun one, you know. We are week five, so it's, it's amped up. Dealing with your past. Dealing with your past. Pete Scazzaro, uh, the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, in talking about dealing with your past, uh, gives us a word picture of how it looks like. He says dealing with your past is as, is, it looks like going back in order to go forward. Going back in order to go forward. Now, at face value, this statement seems paradoxical. It seems a bit odd, a bit strange. Going back in order to go forward. And now, it took me a while to really internalize and assimilate this statement with my belief system. And this is the way I'll describe it. How many of you were part of the era... In, uh, in NS where you, did, where you did the real standard obstacle course. How many of you? The real standard obstacle course, which will include the low wall, the parallel bars, the rope, you know, none of that corridor nonsense, you know. Low wall. Right, low wall, low wall, low wall, yeah. And so you know, okay, the standard obstacle course. I'm not saying I completed it. I did it. Okay, I did it. I attempted. Huh? Okay. This a batch my shame, including with my auto driving license. But anyway, uh, <laughs> okay. 
the low wall. How many of you know how, how the low wall works? Okay, it's a wall, it's about yay high. And what you do is that you do a 600 meter rundown. And so you run 600 meters, and then you approach the wall, and you do a running start, and then you attempt to clear the wall. You know, you do your, your clearance thing. And you know, for most people who attempt the wall the first few times, they will never clear it. Right? Most of them will run, ah, and after a 600 meter rundown, they are a bit tired, and they will like, you know, knock into the wall, like, bam, and, and, and they will try to climb the wall again. Now for rookies, what they would typically do is they stand at the base of the wall and then the wall is about this high and then they, they try to, you know, overcome the wall. In this way, they're like, okay, I'm this close. I, I, I'm there already. And they try to climb over the wall. And then the sergeant walk over like, hey, stupid! And then he'll ask you to walk backwards, right? He'll ask you like, take a few steps back and you will, you know, disembark the wall. Take a few steps back. Restart your running start, and with momentum, you'll get over the wall. How many of you remember? Does this bring back traumatic experiences and memories? Yeah? This is how I'll describe this movement that we're about to partake in. Going back in order to go forward. It looks like that. And sometimes in order to go forward in life, in our spirituality, to overcome obstacles in life, we need to go back in order to go forward. Go back in order to move forward. I just suddenly triggered all these memories of my sergeant screaming at me. So, uh, I'm going back. <laughs> now in talking about this, I know it brings up all sorts of questions, objections. You know, maybe you have heard sermons on the past before. And, uh, and I think the question that's probably taking all your minds today or right now is this. Isn't it bad to revisit the past? Isn't it bad to revisit the past, right? You know, in doing a quick Google search uh, on the past, um, you know, I, I, I searched up uh, Christian sermons on the past, you know, as I normally do with all my sermons, just to find out what people are talking. Christian sermons on the past. And um, the first few sermons, or I would say even the first couple of pages of sermons, it, the sermon titles were all like, Getting Past Your Past. Well, that's brilliant. You know, I should have used that. Getting Past Your Past. Letting go of your past, forgetting your past, moving on from your past. And all these uh, different sermon titles uh, that seems to suggest to us that the past is something you let go, you move on, you ignore, you just leave aside and you move on in life. And so much of church culture today tells us that the past is something you move on from. You don't talk about, you ignore, you disregard, you don't recognize, you just move on. And if we were to talk about the past in church culture and something like a traumatic memory comes up, abuse, etc., and we get sort of uncomfortable, emotional, it gets too deep, you will almost immediately hear this verse being quoted like a knee-jerk reaction. And you are all familiar with this verse. It goes like this in Philippians chapter 3. Great verse. When you hear people talk about our past, oh, it's getting too deep, too emotional. But brother, you need to read Philippians chapter 3. Can we have that verse up? Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward a goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Hey brother, that past sucks, but forget it, forget it. You know, leave it behind and strain on towards what's ahead. And we hear this verse quoted really, really often in church, particularly pertaining to memories of trauma, abuse, the past. But, you know, there are three rules uh, uh, you know, when, when you, you have to engage in when you read Scripture in the Bible. Uh, the first rule is context. The second rule is context. And the third rule is context. I'm your pastor. I'm really smart. <laughs> so, context, context, context. Now, it's a great verse, great quote. You know, we can put it on a, a pin cushion. We can tweet it, Instagram it, and it will work really fine. But there's a problem with that. Primarily being that that's not what Paul was trying to say at all. If you read that verse in context, you'll realize that the behind he was referring to was not the past nor his but. It was not referring to some trauma he experienced or an ex-lover who dumped him or a mistake he made. The past he was referring to was all the wealth, the privilege that he had to give up in order to follow Christ. 
Catch this, Paul had learned a lot and accomplished a lot in the past before he was a follower of Jesus. He was on the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body in Israel. Talk about power, talk about authority. He was a student of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was on the fast track to becoming the high priest or one of the leading rabbis in Israel. And he gave all of that up in order to follow Jesus, living a life of poverty, never having a family of his own, beaten, jailed multiple times, rejected from Jewish society. The past that he was talking about was all the wealth and privilege he had to put aside in order to follow Christ. He gave up all of that in order to follow Christ. That was the past he was talking about. But let's say I'm wrong. Let's say Andre is heretical in here and the past he's talking about really is your past experiences. How many of you will agree that simply ignoring your past or pretending it doesn't exist or like, you know, I'm just going to forget what is behind doesn't really work for the most part. We agree on that, yes? You know, we, we look at the past, I'm just going to forget it. But more often than not, you'll find the past creeping up and following you. Kind of like, you know, when you leave the toilet and you go look down and there's a piece of toilet paper sticking on your shoe and you walk around, it's like, oh, you're still there. The past, every now and then when we look down, it's still there. The past has a strangely ironic way of being very present. Think about it. Some of your past experience, your past traumatic moments percolate to the surface in the midst of a conflict, a circumstance, or a similar situation. You find your past creeping up to the surface. Think about the sudden outbursts, the emotional reactions. Think about sometimes sitting in, in a movie and seeing a, a character being played that reminds you of a loved one who has passed and being overwhelmed with a surge of emotion. Think about the outburst of anger and rage that comes out of nowhere because your loved one, your significant other, seems to portray a trauma that you've experienced in your younger days. The past has a strangely ironic way of being very present. Am I right? Am I right? We're all familiar with the popular axiom, don't let your past dictate or determine your future. That's true, we all agree. However, we, the way we commonly approach living out that truth is ignoring, sidestepping, disregarding the events of the past. We attempt to forget the past, move on. But we fail to recognize that ignoring the past and not dealing with it is actually the source of your emotional pain, your dysfunction. It actually robs us of an emotionally healthy life. I think we overestimate our ability to ignore our past and underestimate the past's ability to influence our present. Think about it. George MacDonald, a pastor. Sorry, Gordon MacDonald, a pastor. George MacDonald is a country singer, but God... Oh no, I wrote it as George MacDonald. Gordon MacDonald. <laughs> Dang. Come on, Andre. Gordon MacDonald. We cannot expect to live healthily in the future when the baggage of the past keeps banging away at the trapdoor of our minds, demanding attention. It distorts perspectives, twists meanings, and undermines the confidence we need to press forward in the present. The past has a strangely powerful ability to influence our present. You know, the term past is so broad and huge for the most part, the past for me is filled with happy memories and moments. Recently, I was doing the Marie Kondo thing, looking at uh, all, all my old pictures, and uh, I found an old picture I'd like to share with you. Can we have my picture up? You have that? Yeah? This is, uh, you know, they, they did the 10-year thing. This is my 15-year thing. Look at that. The guy in the orange is me, and the guy above me with his head leaning on my head is Axel. Can you see it? You, can, you don't believe it. Uh, that's really me. You know, they used to tell me that when I was younger, I looked like Terry from I Not Stupid. Yeah? <laughs> Where's my pink dolphin, my sunshine bread? And uh, so, that is me. But, you know, look at me. I'm such a happy, joyful child. <laughs> I tell you, man, I, I, was, I was not fun and pleasant to be around. The reason why I'm so committed to Axel was because he was my friend when nobody wanted to be my friend. <laughs> nobody. Look at that. Do you want to be friends with that? That was... Yeah, and this is a picture, okay? We're supposed to be happy. And that was, that was happy. And so, memories, right? Okay. When I talk about the past today, you know, we're going to shift slides in a bit. I want to specifically define it as well as zone in on three specific areas. Say three. Three. Okay. 
The past today, the, the past that I'm referring to and talking about today are what you have done, what was done to you, and where you came from. Now, the past belief of God is really general, carries all sorts of meanings and memories for different people. The word past seems to conjure different emotions for different people. But today, we're going to zone in on a very specific aspect of what the past is. That is, what you've done, what was done to you, where you came from. And I, I know you, you think, oh, is this a song? Yeah. Who you are, where you're from, don't care what you did. <laughs> you love. Oh, yeah, my millennials. There you are. <laughs> but if I can expound further, okay, I want, I want to expound the three points I brought up further. And let's have the next slide. What you have done, I'm talking specifically about guilt from past mistakes. Guilt from past mistakes. What was done to you, I'm talking about traumatic experiences. And where you came from, I'm talking about your family of origin. Oh, you know this is going to be a fun sermon. It's going to be a fun one. Fun for me, not for you. But uh, let's look at the first one, okay? What you have done. Guilt from your past mistakes. I read this story recently of uh, Noel Coward, the famous playwright, pulling a really interesting prank. He sent an identical note to 20 famous men in London. The, onim- the anonymous note simply read, Everyone has found out what you are doing. If I were you, I would get out of town. He sent that note, anonymous note, to 20 men in London. Supposedly, all 20 men actually left town. Why did they leave? It's guilt. You know, when I was a youth leader, I had this uh, really, really uh, great strategy for getting my youths to you know, account for their sins. And some of them need to recover from their traumatic experiences. But I will call them up, you know, in the day and be like, hey, is there something that you need to tell me? <laughs> or, hey, uh, I know about the girl. <laughs> and then they will, they will spill everything out. You know? They will like, you know, just go on and on as though they took like three, four laxatives and just like, Wah! and everything just came out. And, uh, and, and I used to do that all the time. You know, I have since repented. I'm now a senior pastor. That's a youth pastor thing. And so I don't do that anymore. <laughs> But what is guilt? Okay, I'd like to define guilt uh, for all of us. Guilt uh, is the dread of the past, a pain that wells up within our hearts because we committed an offense or failed to do something right. It is a phantom pain, you know, like amputees experiencing, uh, like what amputees experience after a limb has been removed. It's a part of the body that does not exist but screams for attention. Often people experience this kind of dread, obsessed by the memory of some sin, Committed years ago, it never leaves them. Crippling their enjoyment of life, their devotional life, their relationship with others, they live in fear that someone will discover their past. They work overtime trying to prove to God that they are truly repentant. Before we beat guilt up too much, let me remind you that guilt, for the most part, is very constructive. It's like an electric fence that gives us a jolt when we begin to stray beyond our boundaries. It sends an alarm to wake us up when something needs our attention. Like pain, guilt tells you when something is wrong. When you feel it, you don't just sit there, you do something about it. But there's a difference between experiencing guilt and living in guilt. There's a difference between experiencing guilt and living in guilt. And a guilt-filled lifestyle is not what Jesus intends for you and me. It's one thing to experience guilt, it's another thing to live in it. Guilt is one of the most crippling diseases among people today. Psychiatrists and doctors say that unresolved guilt is the number one cause of mental illness and suicide. It prompts millions of people to gulp down pills to tranquilize anxiety. Psychologist Roy Baumeister studied guilt in 1991 and discovered that the average person spends approximately two hours a day feeling guilty, and for 39 minutes of that time, people feel moderate to severe guilt. Now, we all make mistakes. There are skeletons in all of our closets. Think about it. If someone actually sent you that note, you know, hey, I know what you did last summer. Everyone knows what you did. I'm going to put everything on Instagram and Facebook. I've seen what you do at home. How many of you would disregard me? No, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. You know, I, I've never done anything wrong. How many of you can say that you are guilt-free? That you, your life is an open book, that you're truly authentic, vulnerable, that there's nothing hidden? We all have skeletons in our closets. We all live with the bitter memories of something that happened in the past. For many of us, guilt stalks us for years of our life. We cannot forget Forget what we did a year ago, two years ago, 20 years ago. Maybe you lied, gossiped, maligned, stole. Or maybe you had an affair, an abortion, seriously harmed another person. 
the memory haunts us all, stomping out any hope of joy. And I would like to suggest to you that that is no way to live at all. That is not what Jesus wants for his follower. His heart is not on his heart for you to suffer from guilt for all of eternity, to relish, to soak, to marinate in the pain of your mistakes. He desires you to be free from sin, but also free from guilt and from shame. We read uh, this psalm uh, uh, last week, and let's, let's have that psalm, psalm 32. And this is David's confession after his sin, his sin with Bathsheba, after he sent Uriah to the front lines of battle. It says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you took away the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Just catch that first line. When I kept silent, when I was silent, when I did not confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Just painful, painful language. My suggestion to you is that the human body, our physical body, was not designed to bear the weight of unconfessed sin. There's so much uh, study uh, and, and even secular studies that seem to suggest to us that unconfessed sin, guilt, shame, these feelings, if left unconfessed, would actually translate to physical issues, to physical symptoms. And we talked about it last week. You know, we talked about confession, uh, and it's, it's, I, I think it's a good teaching. I might be biased because I actually did it. And so, you know... Uh, Feel free to check that out, but uh, we talk about confession. But you know, I, I think to be guilt-free, confession is but the first step. It's but the first step. Not all of you suddenly like, oh my gosh, is there more steps? Yes, there are. Okay, confession is just the first step. And if I had to map it out, it would look like the following steps. Can we have those steps? Confession, repentance, restitution, and self-forgiveness. Confession, repentance, restitution, and self-forgiveness. Now, because of time, I just want, like to touch quickly on one of the four. I'd like to give you a short word on restitution. Restitution. When we talk about the theology of salvation in the church today, for most churchgoers, salvation looks like I have said the prayer already. If you ask a person, how do you know you are truly saved? They'll be like, when I was 17 years old, I prayed the sinner's prayer. That's, a, that's, that's great. And I love it for the most part. But there are two problems with it. One the practice of praying the sinner's prayer did not come into practice till the early 1900s. And so if the sinner's prayer is the way by which we are saved, then everyone who existed before the 1900s are somewhere else. Second problem is that, that that wasn't the salvation that Jesus and the apostles thought. Salvation was not just a confession of faith, but to Jesus and the apostles, it was a new lifestyle, a new way of being human, a new allegiance to a new kingdom. So in essence, salvation is a confession that is backed up and validated by a lifestyle, by practical life changes. Restitution is what backs up our confession of guilt. Restitution validates, ratifies, our confession of guilt, our apology. Restitution is where we right our wrong. Money, let's say we stole money. It's not enough to confess like, hey, I stole 50 bucks from you. Restitution says I need to pay back that 50 bucks, maybe with a bit of interest. Money is the easy example. It's easy, right? We, we understand it very plain and simple. But what about, okay, if the sin was damaging someone's reputation? You gossip, you slander, you malign someone. Restitution would say that you would have to go to every single person that you maligned, that you gossiped, that you slandered, with you partook partic in that, and progressively uh, restore the person's reputation. Restitution's process looks like going around to clear the person's name and progressively work to earn that person's trust back. And here's my proposition. Some of us still live in guilt today because we have verbally expressed the guilt of our mistakes. We've done that. We've done a confession piece. But beyond that, you have not made any practical repayments, changes in your life that matches your confession. If you express guilt, yet are unwilling to make those life changes, those repayments, my suggestion to you is that you are not as guilty or you have, you have not uh, embraced remorse and sorrow as well as you think you have. 
Now, it's, it's a really simple statement I'm about to make. What do you call a person who says something, but yet does something different? A liar, a hypocrite. And for the believer who confesses the sin, who confesses guilt, who says they are sorry, they're remorseful, and yet are not willing to make the necessary effort to restitution, there's a disconnect here. And I believe there's an essential step in being free from guilt. It's not just enough to confess and say, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry, person. But you have to make practical steps to change it. The next uh, aspect of Pastor I'd like to talk about is this. What was done to you? Traumatic experiences. What was done to you? Traumatic experiences. Now, uh, trauma can mean different things to different people. Some of you know trauma is a really painful uh, word. It could uh, bring up memories of abuse, uh, of uh, being beaten or of, uh, being embarrassed and being maligned. Uh, for some, trauma could be as simple as, you know, um, you order chicken rice, but fishball soup came, then you lose your all your confidence in the chicken rice guy, you know. Um, that's a terrible example, but you know what I mean. Trauma, it varies, right? There is a varying definition, varying scale. But uh, I'd like to define for trauma for us real quick. Trauma, red slide. Trauma is anything that happens to us or something we witness that is unpredictable out of control and threatens our sense of safety or the safety of those we love can be defined as trauma. We all have traumatic moments in life. You know, the death of a parent, a sibling, a divorce, growing up in poverty or wealth, a childhood disease, abuse, the betrayal of a friend or leader, an embarrassing incident, or even something your parents said to you when you were younger. Trauma. The truth is, in this life, we will never be immune to trauma, no matter big or small. Tim Keller has this amazing uh, faith-building quote. He says this, Tim Keller, No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable, with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin. Now, do you feel your faith rising up? This is church, after all. <coughs> It's true, right? You know, we all are not immune to traumatic experiences because in life, there will be pain, there will be struggle, there will be death. Viktor Frankl uh, was a writer, a Jewish neurologist and psychologist in Vienna who at the outset of World War II was taken by the SS to Auschwitz. His wife and his family were immediately put to death in the gas chambers and then he spent years, the rest of the war, in literally hell on earth first at Auschwitz and then in the death camps all through Northern Europe. After the war, he was one of the few to survive the Holocaust. And at the end of the war, he wrote a book titled Man's Search for Meaning. That book was written in 1946. And uh, along with that, he pioneered a new form of therapy that he called logotherapy. It was logo from this Greek idea of meaning, meaning therapy. It was based on what he discovered in Auschwitz. What he discovered was that the men who made it through, those who survived the Holocaust, the women for the most part were put to death immediately. And then men who were left in the death camps, the men who made it through, he said were not the ones that were tall or strong or tough or athletic or whatever. It was the men who found meaning in their suffering, who found a purpose for the living hell, who had something, a reason to live. Catch that. It's not the men who were big, strong, tough, athletic, healthy, but it was the men who found meaning in the midst of the pain and suffering. So Frankl was a psychologist, and as a neurologist, he was adamant to the day of his death that the point of life was not just to be happy. He said that that's not human beings, men or female, primal, gut-level, gut instinctive need, desire, angst. That's not the main thing as human beings we crave. He said the point of life is meaning, that at a primal gut level, the way we were wired by God was for meaning, something greater than ourselves. Frankl will go on to say that there are three ways to discover meaning in life. In his own words, he said there's one, creating a work or doing a deed, contribution to the world. You can write a novel, start a business, open a school, lead a church, etc. Two, experiencing something or encountering someone. So relationships, raise your children, be there with your spouse, etc. But here's number three. The attitude that we take toward unavoidable suffering. That was one of the three options to find meaning and purpose in life. The attitude that you take, that I take toward unavoidable suffering. 
For Franco, suffering was an opportunity to rise above the situation they were in. For him, it was a death camp and let him grow in his character and mature in that. In doing so, take a tragedy and turn it on his head into triumph. His famous line, he says this. The question we need to ask ourselves or stop asking is this, what can I get out of life? And instead ask the question, what can life get out of me? The point Frankel raised in his writings was this, we all suffer. In life, we all suffer. The question we need to ask, rather, is how do we suffer well? How do we suffer well? Robert Spitzer, who headed up the task force that in 1980 wrote DSM-3, which is like the handbook for the American Psychiatric Association, in an interview in 2007, he said this with great regret. He said, we have medicalized much of ordinary human sadness. He said this in his interview, we are not interested in understanding the patient's life or why, or why they are suffering from these symptoms. If the patient was very sad, anxious or unhappy, then it was simply assumed that he or she was suffering from a disorder that needed to be cured rather than from a natural and normal human reaction to certain life conditions that needed to be changed. He goes on and makes this statement. Here we have that quote up. He says, there is a harmful cultural belief that much of our everyday suffering is a damaging encumbrance best swiftly removed, a belief increasingly trapping us within a worldview that regards all suffering as a purely negative force in our life. And this is a psychologist who said that, one of the world's leading psychologists. I'd like to suggest to you that what causes us immense pain, especially you know, with regards to navigating our past, what brings up this pain, this uh, painful, searing emotions that impact the deep, visceral part of our souls is that we perceive that all our past experience, our pain, our suffering, the circumstances that we've had to overcome in life, all these things have no value, has no purpose, has no meaning, that they are all for naught. And that, my suggestion to you, is what brings about pain, immense emotional pain in our very soul. I'd like to look at the passage just in case you're wondering whether this is a church at all or a TED Talk, but we are a church and we believe in the Bible. Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 17 and 26. Now, this is a familiar story, but we're going to read it together. One day, Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and of, from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the towels into the middle of the ground, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. It's like, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to think to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew that what they were thinking and asked why you're thinking these things in your heart, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up. But one you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now catch this line. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Get up, take your mat, and go home. In front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Now this story, you've read it a bunch of times, and it's a brilliant, miraculous story. It says to us uh, uh, that... You know, perhaps the forgiveness of sin, you know, it stands at a greater priority level than even the healing of that man. Jesus didn't say like, or be healed and then preach the gospel and forgive the sin. He, there is no greater need on planet earth than the forgiveness of sin. But I, I want you to, to catch this. That last night he said, he said to the man, take up your mat and go home. Take up your mat and go home. Now, when we look at this story, we think the mat is like a tatami mat, you know, something you can roll up and then you just carry. It's really convenient, it's really easy. But, you know, research will tell us that that mat was not just a, a little mat, but it was something that he literally lived on for days and days on end. He never left that mat. And that mat would have been more uh, towards a, a bed rather than a, a, a flat piece of fabric. It had a bit of structure in it. They could carry him on it. They could move him around, kind of like a stretcher with a bit of structure. It was a big cumbersome thing to carry. Now, in that, in that culture, in Jewish culture in that day, having a disease or a physical infirmity was a symbol of shame because to the Jewish person, 
having disease, a physical infirmity, was a direct result of being cursed by God or the sin that you carried in your family. That having disease or physical infirmity was an indictment on you and your family and your offsprings that God was displeased with your entire family line. And what people would do is that they would mock, ridicule, spit, distance themselves from people who had physical diseases and infirmities, especially those who were born with it. Uh, we're all familiar with the phrase, a stumbling block. Yeah, we're familiar with that, yes? The phrase, a stumbling block, actually uh, came out of Jewish culture, and it came out of this cruel practice where the Jews would literally take a block of wood and put it in front of a blind, man, blind man's path in order to trip him. And it was something that they used to ridicule, mock uh, blind people. And more than that, it was to distance themselves from them. Like, hey, these are the people that God has judged. And so we want to distance ourselves from them. And we do so by ridiculing, by mocking, by shaming them. And so all this to say, having disease, having infirmities, having need was an immensely painful and shameful thing in that culture. Now, after healing the man, the question would be, why did Jesus tell the man, to take his bed with him. He had been unable to walk for 38 years. First of all, the mat would have been absolutely disgusting. Talk about smelly, you know. I wear my shoes for a day and, you know, I smelt it and I'm like, I want nothing to do with it. Imagine being on a mat for 38 years and Jesus, the f- one of the first things he said to the man was, take it with you and go home. Now, in many ways, the mat was a symbol of shame. It reminded him of his past. It reminded him of or probably all the trauma he experienced, all the ridicule, all the mocking. It reminded him that he was a lesser person at one time. That was a symbol of his shame. If I had been the man in the story, I would have really appreciated the miracle. Thank you, Jesus. And I would have taken my new legs and walked away or run away as far as I could possibly do so from that ugly, disgusting, smelly, shameful man. Yet Jesus wanted the man to take his mat with him. And I would like to propose to you that Jesus doesn't do anything without intention. Now, this is all hypothetical. This is Andre's opinion. Everybody say Andre's opinion. Andre's opinion, okay. Andre's opinion is this. This is hypothetical. The man took his mat with him. And uh, I'd like to suggest to you it's for this purpose. Imagine, you know, he took that big cumbersome mat with him and he was walking down the streets of Jerusalem and, and people were like, hey, yo, like what happened to you? Uh, let's call him Matt. You know, Matt, why are you carrying your mat? And he was carrying that, that thing and, and he's like, oh, man, the, the Messiah healed me. You know, I was... I was stuck in that, that infirmity for 38 years, but Jesus set me free. And he's like, oh man, praise God, glory to God. And then he brings that, that, that thing home and he puts it at home in the corner. And you know, the years go by and he hosts tea. And someone new that he meets off the street comes in and has tea with him. And he's like, oh, what is that mat in that corner? And you're like, oh, let me tell you a story. Jesus healed me. And he could recount that story. And the years go by, you know, he passes on. And generations after generations lives in that house. But that mat is still in that corner. And the generations after generations would tell the story of how their great-great-grandfather, their Asokong, was healed by Jesus. That is all hypothetical. That's all my assumption. But I believe that the symbol of his shame, what signified, what represented his shame, after Jesus' healing, restoration of men, that symbol of shame on this side of restoration is now a testimony. It's now something that declares glory, that declares God's goodness to a broken world. The symbol of your shame, if you allow God to interact with it, if you allow God into those moments, those situations, and bring restoration, hope, and healing, the most shameful traumatic experiences in life has the potential to be statement pieces that testify of the glory and goodness of God. Think about the cross. The cross was a Roman means of execution. But today, we look upon it as a symbol of beauty, of glory. Why? Because through the cross, God reconciled us to the Father, forgiving the sins of the world. And today, it's no longer a symbol of shame, of disgust, pain. Today, it's beautiful. And that's what God can do with the most traumatic experiences that you experience in life. The saying goes, Forget the past and look ahead. While that's great and well and popular, but I believe the gospel actually allows us to remember. It doesn't call us to forget even the most traumatic experiences. So the question I'd like to propose to you today is this. Are you willing or able to 
look into the most painful moments in your life, the embarrassing situations, the abuse, the pain, or maybe aspects of the upbringing, are you able to look into those moments and allow God to reveal to you His hand in that moment and also give you a sense of meaning and purpose for your life? The last aspect of the past I'd like to touch on, and this is the most touchy one, but uh, you know, I really feel that this is essential for us to talk on, is this where you came from, your family of origin, your family of origin. So I'd like to define what a family of origin is, and uh, let's have that next slide up. Family of origin. Our family of origin is the family we were born or adopted into. It's the people who raise us and who spend most of our childhood with. When the Bible uses the word family, catch this, it refers to our entire extended family over three to four generations. And when I talk about family today, I'm talking about it in this regard. It's the home that you were born into or adopted into, but it also extends to your extended family three or four generations. This means your family, in the biblical sense, includes all your brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, atokong, atoma, great uncles and aunts, significant others. And, you know, if you let it play out over time, it can go all the way back to the mid-1800s. That's what I'm talking about. For most of us, the single greatest influence on our life, other than Jesus, is our family of origin. Not only the color of our skin, our height, our genetic code, our strengths, weaknesses, the patterns of how we relate to other people and deal with conflict, the values we live by, the faith we practice, all of this and more have been shaped by our past, specifically our family and childhood. Now, I'd like us to come to a similar conclusion today. No family is perfect. At some level, every family is dysfunctional. Do we agree on that? No family is perfect. Whether we choose to admit it or not, all families have some manner of dysfunction. We all have some kind of emotional baggage that we carry from our past. And this baggage often holds us back from the life of freedom and joy that Jesus has for us. While we are affected in life by powerful external events and circumstances through life, our families are the most powerful group to which we will ever belong. Even those who left home as young adults determined to break from their family history soon find that their family's way of doing life follows them wherever they go. What happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. The consequences of and actions and decisions taken in one generation affect those who follow after it. Case in point, for this reason, it's common to observe certain patterns from one generation to the next, such as divorce, alcoholism, addictive behavior, sexual abuse, poor marriages, one child running off, mistrust of authority, pregnancy or wedlock, inability to, to sustain relationships. And scientists and sociologists have been debating for decades whether this is a result of nature, our DNA, genetic code, or nurture, the environment to which we grew up in, or both. Peace Gazzaro, you know, we love the man. That's why we have this whole series. He has this uh, great quote. He says this, In emotionally healthy churches, people understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. Profound statement. They have realized from scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationships, relationship exists between the kind of person they are today and their past. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we have grown up in is the primary and accept in rare instances, the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. Peace Cazero. Now I'd like to take you through a few passages of scriptures and then we're going to bring this plane to a landing real soon. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And we're all familiar with the story of Abraham, Abraham. And, uh, you know, in Genesis 12, we read of God's great promise to Abraham and uh, if you're new to the story of Scripture, Abraham's story is front and center in the story of God. The redemptive narrative of Scripture is about how God calls this random guy in, called Abraham in the desert and calls him to be the vehicle of God's saving, healing life, giving love to a world which is spinning out of control. And he gives him this incredible promise when he calls him in Genesis chapter 12. And we read this. The Lord has said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land. I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you. It's an amazing promise if you 
uh, understand the story of Scripture, you know that Abraham was married to a woman named Sarai, and Sarai uh, couldn't have kids. And here, God promises him, I will make you into a family. Your family will be so big that it will be a nation. And through your nation, all nations of the earth will be blessed. This is an incredible promise. And we read further in Scripture, Abraham was a stud. He was like, okay, God, I'll do it. He left his comfort. He left his privilege. He left his wealth and journeyed on toward the promise of God. But let's read further on. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, uh, verse 10. It says this in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was so severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. You're thinking, such a romantic man. Let's read on further. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, honey, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. Please say, my sister, that you may be well me for your sake, that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princess of Pharaoh also saw her and commanded commanded her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abraham well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels, blah, blah, blah. It goes on further. Okay, so what did we glean from this story? In this story, Abraham tells his wife Sarai to lie to Pharaoh to put her life on the line just so that he can be A, safe, they will think you're a really beautiful woman and they will kill me just so that you can be A, safe, and B, make a whole bunch of money. You know that you read further on that he was given all sorts of stuff. Pharaoh treated him with great favor. So first of all, he was a shrewd entrepreneur. We can agree on that. But also, a lying sexist jerk of a husband to his wife. He was. Misogyny. You know, it's like, you go and do that so that I can be safe and I can make money. Horrible. But if we read on further in the story of scripture, you know that this is not a one-time slip-up. Turn down to Genesis chapter 20. A few years have passed on since then. Genesis chapter 20. It says, Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Sur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. There's something there about sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now we see that this is an ongoing habitual set-in dysfunction. Abraham partakes in the same sin twice. He lies about his wife in order to save his own skin. He throws her under the bus, quite literally. But the catch is this. The dysfunction didn't, did not just stop with Abraham. It lives on in Abraham's son. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 26. Track with me. I'm taking you somewhere. Genesis chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Notice, same place, same king. When the man of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Wonder where he learned that from. Because he was afraid to say she, was, she is my wife. He thought the man of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's so beautiful. Same thing played out a few chapters later. One generation to the next generation, like father, like son, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It repeats <laughs> itself. Abraham passed down his promise, but notice that he passed on his dysfunction as well. Same king, same place, exact sin, lying through his teeth. And guess what? Spoilers alert, it lives on in Isaac's children as well. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was to rightfully receive his father's blessing. In Genesis chapter 27, we read about Jacob lying to his father in order to steal his brother's birthright. Now, this is not the first and only lie that Jacob tells in his whole life. This will be the first of many lies if you are familiar with the story of Scripture. The name Jacob, Jacob in Hebrew is the, is the word Yaakov, and it more literally means deceiver. So now we know that Abraham's sin is not only passed on from generation to generation, it is in fact gaining traction. It is getting worse. And shockingly enough, it is passed down to Jacob's son as well. 
we see a pattern start to emerge from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then in Jacob's son. They, sons, they would sell their brother Joseph into slavery, fake his death, deceive his father for 10 years. You're familiar with that story, popular story. They would lie once again. That sin of lying repeated itself from generation to generation. Generation upon generation, we see lying, misogyny, favoritism. Abraham favors Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac favors Esau over Jacob. Jacob favors Joseph over all his son. And that creates sibling rivalry, which creates all sorts of problems. Thank God my parents love me as a middle child. Thank you, Mommy Day. But no rivalry between me and my siblings, even though I think I'm the most loved. <laughs> it's true. If you ask all of us, like, who's the favorite, we'll all tell you I'm the favorite because so secure. The truth is, the sins and dysfunction of our previous generation are often repeated in the next. How many of you in your younger, day, younger days say that, I will never be like mommy. I will never be like daddy. In your younger days. And how has is, how is that played out for you? <laughs> for me, you know, in my younger days, I've said I'll never do certain things that my mom does. And today, I am the living embodiment of my mother's mistake. <laughs> how has that planned out for you? The question I'd like to ask you, to ask you today is this. What are some patterns, cycles of dysfunction, habits, and coping mechanisms that have been repeated in your family line? The Ten Commandments carries within it an extremely provocative statement. It says in, it, in Exodus chapter 20, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, if you're new to the Bible, new to church, do not let this scare you off at all. When I first read it, I was like, Whoa, what does it mean? How so unfair? That means I'm going to get punished for my Atokong sin. You know, and you know, there, there are a bunch of layers here and, and scholars have given us a bunch of insight to what this verse really uh, and actually means. Don't freak out here, but God, as far as we can tell, and scholars will agree, is not saying that great-great-grandson will be punished for great-great-grandpa's sin. It's not saying that. He's essentially saying three things. Everybody say three. Now, I really, really want to get this through to you, and so bear with me for the next few minutes. Number one, a parent's sin has consequences on their children. A parent's sin has, a consequence, has consequences on their children. Case in point, is a touchy subject, but if dad and mom get a divorce, research will show that the, the group that will, that will uh, you know, that, that will suffer the most for is not the parents, but it's actually the children. Emotional pain, trust issues, insecurity, confusion over identity, fear of commitment or marriage later in life. A member of the New York State Prison Board noticed that six members of the same family were incarcerated at the same time. The board did some research looking back a few generations to try to find the original couple who initiated this tragic family legacy. They traced the family line back to an ancestor born in, in the 1700s, a man considered lazy and godless with a reputation as the town troublemaker. He was also an alcoholic and viewed as having low moral character. To make matters worse, he married a woman who was much like himself, and together they had six daughters and, and two sons. And here's what the report revealed about the approximately 1,200 descendants of this couple who were alive at that time. 310 of them were homeless, 160 of them were prostitutes, 180 of them were suffering from drug or alcohol abuse, 150 of them were criminals who spent time in prison, including seven for murder. The report also found that the state of New York had spent $1.5 million, a shockingly high number at the time, to care for this line of descendants, and not one had made a significant contribution to society. Sadly, we can see by this example how harmful how the harmful dysfunctions of parents can be passed down from generation to generation. A parent's sin has consequences on their children. Next point is this. That sin, whether you choose to believe or not, actually runs in the family. Sin runs in the family. Generational sin is a very real thing. Sin, or more accurately, the bent towards certain kinds of sin can be passed down from parent to child, like DNA or genetics. We all inherit stuff from our parents, be it looks, personality traits, or even a propensity to certain illnesses or conditions. We all know that. Even today, in what is the hands down the most hyper-individualistic society in all of human histories, we have sayings that go like father, like son, 
the apple doesn't far from, far from, fall far from the tree. Even in culture, we recognize that the traits, both the good and the bad, are passed down from generation to generation. There is sin, but perhaps there's also dysfunctional beliefs that you were brought up in that have so shaped how you believe and what you believe about certain things today. Let's have a, a bunch of, of those stuff up. You know, it could be money, you know, uh, that it could be the best source of security, conflict, that you shouldn't be in conflict. Sex, you know, is not to be talk, talked about openly or men in the family, is you can be more promiscuous because you don't lose anything and women have to be chased, have to be, you know, uh, a pure uh, sexuality in marriage will come easy, grief and loss, sickness is a sign of weakness, etc., etc. Success is about getting the best schools, making a lot of money, getting married, having children, feelings and emotions, you're not allowed to have it. These things, okay, if you look at it, ask yourself the question, right? Did you have conversations about this growing up in your home? And if not, what is your primary belief about these 10 things? And were they shaped by your family of origin? And the third point he was trying to bring up in that verse is this, that you can break free from sin that goes back for generations. You can break free from sin that goes back for generations. You read that verse, it says that his punishment lasts for three or four generations. Three or four. But his love and his mercy is extended for a thousand generations. Now, a lot of the meaning in this verse has been lost over time, and especially lost because we are not in a Hebrew cultural context. But the phrase three or four, to the Jews, to the Hebrews, especially that day, would loosely translate to a little while. It was a, their way of saying a little while, like give me a few minutes, a little while. His punishment, his judgment is only but for a little while, but his love and mercy is for a thousand generations. If you put it on the scale, three and four, but his mercy and his love far outweighs his judgment and justice. Why is he saying to you and me that it is possible to be free from cycles after cycles, from generations upon generations of sin in your family line? Your past may have shaped your present, but it does not have to determine your future. It is true, and it's absolutely biblical. You know how many of you have read the book of Matthew? Please raise your hands so I know that you actually love Jesus and read the Bible. How many of you read the book of Matthew? Okay. In the first chapter, there's a, it opens up with the genealogy of Jesus, right? Most of us go like, this is like, you know, unimportant. Let me go to the good stuff, you know. And we always wonder, like, why is the genealogy there? You know, do I really need to know this information? And usually I skip classes, I glance at it, I, I, I do read it because, you know, I'm a pastor and I read all the stuff, including the maps. I've always skipped and glanced past it. But recently, while I was rereading it, I decided to read it carefully line upon line. And I was so taken aback by the sheer amazingness of Jesus' family line. Talk about Abraham, Isaac, David, Ruth. But in his family life, right in there, little bits and pieces, are some real rascals like Solomon, Rehoboam, Manasseh, probably the most evil king in the Bible, Amon, Assyria, idolater. The thought crossed my mind of why did Jesus choose to align himself with an impure, imperfect family line? Why did he do so? A tainted bloodline with generation upon generation of sin, repeated, habitual. Perhaps it's to say to us that while we may come from an imperfect family, there is hope in God for redemption. The Bible tells us that we have been adopted into the family of God and now we belong to a new family, his family. You know, my, 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 I have some friends who adopted a, a little girl from uh, Africa and she was adopted into a home and uh, she spent three years uh, living in Africa, some of the most hellish situations, famine, always starving. And uh, when she was brought into uh, their home, and this is in America, they were, they were pretty well off. Uh, they said that for the first few weeks that she was at home at the dinner table, whenever they put food out, she would hoard food. She would literally stuff her face with food, even while she was really full, even when she was on the verge of puking, she would keep stuffing her face with food. And what she would also do is she would take uh, some of the stuff on the table, she would hide it in her pockets, and she would bring it into the room. She was hoarding. And this was based off like, her experience in those formative years of her childhood when she was living in Africa, where you wouldn't know when the next meal came. 
you wouldn't know when the next famine will hit and you had to hoard food, you had to eat enough just in case you don't have a meal for the next day. And they had to go through this long, arduous process of reparenting her, of teaching her like, hey, you don't have to hoard food anymore. Hey, we are here for you. Hey, this is a safe place. Hey, your food tomorrow is guaranteed. You don't have to do this anymore. And over months and months and months of conditioning, of reparenting, of going through an honestly transformative process, she is now shaped, molded by this new family that she is a part of. In many ways, we too need to be reparented. We too need to be reparented by the good father, by the family of God. Some of us need to unlearn bad emotional habits or perspectives we may have picked up and adopt God's perspective and ways. In closing, I'd like to charge us the four ways we can deal with the past. And I promise I won't expound all four. But here are the four ways. Let the past inform you. Let the past inform you. Identify some of the generational sin that's occurred in the family line, habits or coping mechanisms. Break any agreement with those sins and intentionally choose to live differently. If you omit this process of this painful process, honestly, of identifying some of the dysfunction cycles that's been repeated in your family, if you omit this step, my suggestion to you is that more often than not, you are doomed to repeat it. Think of the famous saying by George Sintay, a philosopher, those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Next thing, let the past instruct you. Endeavor to not repeat previous mistakes or the mistakes of previous generations. If you know that in your family line there is a bend towards alcoholism, Stay clear from the edge. Stay clear from the edge. If you know that you have a certain propensity to a certain medical condition, for me it's diabetes, stay clear of sugary drinks, stay clear of a sedentary lifestyle. It makes sense. The same will apply for generational sin, for dysfunction in your family. Am I, are you following me? Yes? Next step, let the past inspire you. If you made it through the or, that ordeal, circumstance or situation, then you can surely make it through the next one. The Bible says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimonies of God, yours, mine, ours, prophesies into future problems, circumstances that the same God who delivered me here, he is good and he is able to do the same in this situation as well. Let the past inspire you. But the last step is this. Let the past ignite you. Ignite you with a passion, a zeal to leave a godly legacy for your children, for your descendants. You don't have to keep repeating the cycles and patterns. The dysfunction can end with you. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the life of Joseph. He came from dysfunction. But even after being sold into slavery, after being accused of rape, he rose to prominence. And instead of retaliating, instead of offering vengeance to his family, he chose to bless them. You can be a Joseph. You can break the dysfunction in your family line. I'd like to end off with the last quote. Pete Scazzaro, he says this, God never loses any part of our past for his future. When we surrender ourselves to him, every mistake, sin, and detour we take in the journey of life is taken by God and becomes his gift for a future blessing. A pastor friend of mine once said this, God wastes nothing. He gets you ready. God wastes nothing. No traumatic experience, no pain, no mistakes. He wastes nothing. He gets you ready. He's able to take all things, work together for your good. Not just some, not just the good, lovely looking ones, but the most painful traumatic experience, the ugly things, the bad things. If you are willing to bring it to him, he's able to turn it into a statement piece, a testimony of his goodness and his glory.